So this evening, I would like to give more of a Zen talk, since we did a Zen practice. I thought it would be appropriate. And so first, I would like, in a way maybe, although it's a talk about Zen and Zen practice and a, a Zen angle, I would like to, to show also the connection. Because often, as Stephen mentioned, certain traditions have a certain tendency to say, we do this, but you don't do it, or things of that nature. <coughs> and to me, what was very uh, interesting is uh, for 10 years, I uh, asked the question, uh, what is this, or something similar to that. And so we did not really talk about mindfulness as such, or we did not talk about loving kindness as such, and things of that nature. But then, as I did the questioning, very quickly I became more aware, and very quickly I became more compassionate, so it seems to work. <laughs> and then after 10 years, I stopped being a nun, and then I came uh, to live in Devon. And in Devon, I, uh, most people were into inside Vipassana meditation. So I tried it out. I thought, why not, you know, see what it is like. And then I realized that when I heard about these two words, Samatha and Vipassana, concentration, and insight, inquiry, looking deeply, I realized that there was actually a real connection. Because my teacher used to talk a lot about that. And this was one of his main teaching, that we needed to balance the two quality of quietness and alertness, which is really what Samatha and Vipassana concentration and inquiry are about. I mean, I remember the first time he was talking about it. He, he said, you need to, to be with these two qualities. You need to balance them. You need to have equilibrium with them. In the same way as a talki. And talki in Korean, because he was talking, I could not see it written. Either it's tak i, and it means one thing, or it's talgi, and it means strawberry. Mm. And I thought, the story doesn't seem to fit with strawberries. <laughs> so possibly he's talking about chicken. And possibly he's talking about hen. Because then he went on to talk about eggs. That's why I thought, that's not strawberries. And so he was saying, you know, it's like when we practice, we try to practice like a hen, hen hatching eggs. She doesn't just sit there, but she moves the eggs about. So the one on top don't get too hot, and the one underneath don't get too cold. So seemingly with her feet, she kind of moves them up. I thought, I was a bit dubious, I thought, oh, really? <laughs> but then I checked, and it's true seemingly. They do that. And so that's where I really saw the connection between all Buddhist practice 
So first you have the Samatha and Vipassana, and after you have different way to do it. And so that's why I wanted to, to read two quotes, which really, I think, are very, um, show this very clearly. So this is from a Zen text. If one remain in deep calm without being aware, it means sinking into dullness. And if one remains aware without being calm, it means becoming entangled in one's thoughts. So basically here he's pointing out that if you just have calm, then actually it might become too calm. And the Buddha also in a sutta says the same. He says if you put too much emphasis on concentration, then it might lead to lack of energy. But if you're too aware, too bright, without calm, then you might be entangled in your thoughts. And if one is not is in a state of being neither aware nor calm, then one is not only entangled in thought, but also submerged by dullness. So possibly you might have experienced these different states throughout the week. Next one. Clear awareness and deep calm are beneficial. But clear awareness with delusion will not work. Deep calm and clear awareness are appropriate. But deep calm with absent-mindedness is not appropriate. So again, he's pointing out that we, when we cultivate meditation, we're actually developing these two things, calm and alertness, awareness, brightness. And so sometimes we might go more one side, more toward the calm, or we might go toward more to inside clarity, brightness. But both of them need to be balanced by each other. So that calm is not better, brightness is not better, it's the two together. And that's what he says. How can del any delusion arise if calm does not let in any distraction and awareness does not leave any room for unskillful thinking? So here, what he is pointing out is that if you're quite anchored and there is that calm, then of course, you might have what I call light thought, but generally you won't be taken over by that. So it's not saying you won't have any thought, but in a way you won't be taken over by them. I think this is a thing important to see. We're not trying to stop the operation of the brain, but more to see that we can have all kinds of thought. But we, do we need to follow them, basically? And so the calm basically helps us to see this has appeared. I don't need to go there. I don't need to go there. 
But of course, if we want to follow a line of thought, we can. And, and so that's what the function of the calm is that we don't become, in a way, dispersed and often agitated. But not by pushing away the thought, but by not, you know, not being stuck, not being triggered by them. As Stephen said, not proliferating with them. And then awareness does not leave room for unskilled, unskillful thinking. And so this is also looking at, it's not just any thought. I mean, you can have creative thought. But it's kind of to see that often we get caught in very unskillful thinking. <coughs> and that can very quickly take us to very dark place. And so the function of awareness is, do I want to go there? I mean, a good example is waiting. You wait for somebody. Four o'clock, he or she is not there. 10 past four, he or she does not love me. 4.20, nobody loves me. 4.30, <laughs> I hate the world. I mean, we can go down that loop, which can be rather painful. Or we might think, oh, they're not here. Nowadays, it's very easy. You send a text or you phone. And once that's what happened to me, I was waiting and the person was not there. So I thought, OK, I'll go and phone. And she said, oh, I thought it was next week. And I thought, great, I can do something else. So it's kind of, in a way, awareness helps us to put clarity. Is it useful? Is it beneficial? Is it skillful? Then I wanted to, to read another quote, which is kind of more like the Zen tradition. And so you have this uh, monk or person who has come from far to see the great Zen master. And he asks the Zen master, what is a Buddha? And so the Zen master says, I could tell you, but you might not believe me. So I'm not sure if it's worth my while to tell you. And then the fellow said, of course, of course, I've come from far. Why should not I believe you? So the master says, the Buddha is nothing special. You are the Buddha. Your mind is a Buddha. And so in a way, when we look at awakening, at practice, I think we have to be careful to think, I need to go somewhere else. I need to be somebody else. When actually, it's more about how can I work with this being, this organism. And awakening is not in the wall of Gaia House. It's not floating, waiting to zap you. You know, or not zap you if he doesn't like you. But it's really within ourselves. And that's why there is this, um, another quote I like very much. And it's from Master Tawi, who is the one who really developed the practice we did today, the questioning practice. And he was very close to lots of lay people, 
and he thought this was an easy technique for daily life. And he corresponded with people by letters. So that's why you have a book of his letters. And so in this one, you have this fellow, official of some kind, who is very worried about his practice. This really doesn't seem to be working. So then Tawi answers him, your letter informs me that your root nature is dim and dull. So basically the guy said, I can't get anywhere, nothing is working, I'm, you know, it's a pit. And then Tawi says, the one who can recognize dim and dull is definitely not dim and dull. <laughs> then I wanted to, to look, as I, we were talking the other day about where the compassion comes in, and uh, I was talking about the Bodhisattva precept, and it seems to me that quite a few of you are interested in, uh, in the ethical aspect of the practice. And so I thought I would just, uh, uh, to show you in a way what I would call um, Buddhist ethics, Buddhist Zen ethics, which I think is very much what we possibly could call nowadays situation ethics. And so just a, a few of them because, uh, the, because often we see the precept are really kind of, you know, don't do this. And that's it. So it's just like not doing something. When actually this Bodhisattva precept, I think the idea is more to reflect on what we do and how we do it. So the first one, refrain from taking life. A disciple of the Buddha must refrain from taking life either by performing the act of killing himself by causing someone else to do it, by doing it in a roundabout way, by praising death, one must never intentionally kill a living creature by creating the cause and condition for death, by developing a mean of taking life, or by engaging in the actual deed of killing. It is a duty of a bodhisattva to be always compassionate and devoted toward others and to lead them to liberation. So again, here, it's not just saying don't do it. It's kind of looking at, if we look at it more in terms of harm, do not do any harm. It's basically, don't do it yourself. Don't cause someone else to do it. Don't do it in a roundabout way. Don't create the condition for doing it. So he's basically asking us to reflect on how harm happened, or how may cause harm. Because I presume none of us go around killing. But do we go around gossiping? And do we gossip in such a way that he goes around and hurts somebody? And that, I think, is something that we do easily. Because, I mean, a, a nice, juicy bit of gossip, isn't it fun? You know? And, I mean, if you get it, you have to spread it. I mean, you know, <laughs> it's not something you keep to yourself. And so, in a way, to see what happened. 
I mean, recently Stephen heard a, a gossip that a conference that is happening is not happening. So, I mean, we can confirm it's happening, but the gossip is that it's not happening. Interesting. A few years back, somebody come to me very concerned. I heard that you and Stephen are divorcing. I thought, oh, really? That's news to us. News to us. And it was somebody in America who we did not really know, who was telling somebody else, who kind of knew us, who got it from somebody else. And I thought, well, interesting, you know? And I mean, I can know, I think what, I know why. I think they confuse us with somebody else who lived in the same town, who were meditation teacher and who were divorcing. But it's interesting how it became us. <laughs> so in a way, what do we do? How do we cause out? So I think it's interesting to look at that. Do we, I mean, in terms of harm to ourselves, in terms of harm around us, in terms of harm to the society. Then there is another one. It gets even more in detail. That's why I like this one very much. Refrain from telling lies. A disciple of the Buddha must refrain from telling lies either by doing so himself, by causing someone else to do so, by doing so in a roundabout way. He must never create the causes and conditions, devise a means for doing so, or actually telling them himself, but even more subtle. He must never convey the impression that he saw something that he did not see, or did not see something that he did see either by physical gesture or by mental intention. <laughs> I mean, this is getting subtle. But this is interesting. I mean, it's like, you know, it's not just about not doing something. It's kind of basically reflecting. How do we talk? What do we say? And generally, it's also, you know, connected with other people. Speaking is really connected to other people. And so, and to me, that's why the thing is not, oh, I'm not going to lie, I'm never going to lie. But it's more, what do I say? How do I say it? What's the impact on other people? And so again, the ethics being about looking, it's back to the awareness, looking at what's going on. And then there was an, Interesting one. Refrain from reviling others in order to spare yourself. So again, I mean, it kind of gets a little psychological. You know, looking at what do we do? I mean, this is 400 AD in China. And they kind of, at all time, to me, that's why I like this precept because I mean, the Chinese in the fifth century had the same thing that we do now, you know, many centuries later. So a disciple of the Buddha must refrain from being miserly and must not encourage others to be so. He must never create the causes and conditions for miserliness, etc., etc., etc. Should he be approached by a poor person begging for something, 
He should give whatever is requested. If, on the contrary, a bodhisattva out of an angry mind does not give a beggar anything, not even a single penny, a needle, or a tiny plant, or nor does, give a, nor does he give someone in search of the Dharma even a few words of advice, then he commits a transgression. So it's kind of, again, they're looking at what causes us to not be generous. Are we not generous to protect ourselves? And do we have ways to kind of revile others so that then we're not generous to them? So again, it's kind of looking kind of at the different aspects. And then the last one. Care well for those who are sick. Upon seeing someone who is afflicted with a disease, a disciple of the Buddha must care and provide for him or her as she would for the Buddha himself. First among the eight fields of blessing is that of nursing the sick. Then so one should make any effort to help people who are ill. But if we fail to nurse or give assistance through thought of dislike or resentment, then this is a transgression. So again, they don't just say, you know, care for people who are sick. They also look at why would not you do so? So if you don't help someone, what is going on? What is happening here? Is there some resentment? Is there some anger? So in a way to see that this ethics is actually really, I would say, totally embedded with the practice. In terms of that, in a way, the practice is going to help us to be more aware. And then if we cultivate this compassionate and wise attitude, then generally also is going to help us to maybe practice more easily, because we'll have less anger, resentment, etc., in the mind. And so they very much see the three things, the three training, as feeding each other. The ethics, the meditation, the wisdom as all actually feeding each other. And then I wanted to talk about a little, because I talked about the factor of awakening, and tomorrow we'll do the last one, which is equanimity. So then I need to talk a little about awakening and not just about the factors. And then what is awakening? I mean, we are kind of, you know, we often have all kind of idea about awakening, and generally we translate it by enlightenment. And I don't use the word because if I say enlightenment, personally, I think of a Christmas tree. You know, <laughs> we sit in meditation and suddenly, poof, become like a Christmas tree. And in a way, awakening. What is this? And like if I look at the experience of my teacher, Master Kuzan, in Korea, he was reputed to have had three awakenings. And you might think, but well, one should be enough, shouldn't <laughs> it? <laughs> but he got three. 
And then each time he had a, a breakthrough, an awakening, he went to his teacher, because that's the way they do it in the Zen tradition. You go to your teacher, you write a little poem, and then the teacher says, yes, yes, you know, good, or no, 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 really, not the real deal. <laughs> so first time, yes, it's a real deal. Second time, yes, you know, good one. And then the third time, he kind of, you know, say, I have this breakthrough, and he write the poem. And then the teacher says, until now, I led you, but now I am going to follow you. Because with his third awakening, third breakthrough, his teacher could see he had actually understood he had attained more than the teacher himself. So I think what this points out is that often we have this idea, awakening is a big bang, personal big bang. And then once you have it, this is it, forever after. You're on a little cloud with a little lighting, and you go into float and look benignly, smilingly upon everything. <laughs> but in, the, in my Dharma family, in Korea, we were the only temple who followed a certain idea. Because in the Zen tradition, you have a very strong idea about awakening and practice. And generally, the main track is what they call sudden awakening, sudden practice. It's what's called sudden, sudden. And that's what you generally go for, even if you take you 10 years to get there, but it's still sudden, sudden. And if you're not into sudden, sudden, then generally you're considered second rate. Mm -hmm. Because then you are into what my Dharma family was into, which was sudden awakening, followed by gradual practice, followed by a sudden awakening, followed by gradual practice. So this came from a, a certain family in Zen in China, where the idea is that, in a way, through the practice, through the cultivation of ethics, meditation, and wisdom, you have a breakthrough. Personally, I would call that you have a moment of de-grasping. You grasp, then suddenly you de-grasp. And then you're going to experience yourself very differently, and you're going to see things very differently. But that doesn't mean that all your habits in that moment are gone. So you have the moment of breakthrough, and then you have the gradual practice after the moment of breakthrough, so that in a way the awakening becomes organic and make a difference in the daily life. And then you can have the possibility for another breakthrough, followed again by this sudden practice. And so I think we have to be careful of thinking of awakening just as this moment. Moment of insight, moment of letting go, moment of seeing. Because generally, yes, you see something, you experience something, but that too is impermanent and it passes. So yeah, it might have a certain impact, but the, the test, will be really in daily life. 
Is it going to make a difference to how you behave toward others, toward your neighbor? I mean, one of my, uh, often we hear of these great enlightened beings and generally they set up on throne and everybody thinks they're incredible. Personally, I think it's easy to be incredible. If you just, you know, you sit on the throne, everybody does everything for you, you don't have to pay for anything. I mean, you know, it's easy to be great. And so I have my test for awakening. You know, I put you in a car, your cell phone is kaput, you are in the middle of nowhere, it's minus 15 degrees or five, and your car broke down, breaks down. What do you do? And then that's a test. But the fact that you say wonderful thing to me doesn't mean anything. I want to see you in daily life. Does it make a difference to the way you are? Because we can say, all of us can say beautiful things. But it's like, you know, as a precept say, if you are, are you resentful? Are you miserly? Are you angry? Do you are? So what is interesting with this idea of sudden and gradual, and personally I think our practice is at the crossroad of the vertical dimension of sudden and the horizontal dimension of gradual. So that sudden is not better than gradual and vice versa. And I think it's important for us to see that certain tradition go most towards sudden, certain tradition goes more toward gradual. But if you go just for one tradition, then generally something is missing. Like in the Zen tradition, often they go for sudden. And if you go for sudden, sudden awakening, sudden practice, generally what you see very quickly is ethics go. I don't know why. You know, I am awakened, I understand everything, and now I can drink as much alcohol I want, and I can go and have as many ladies I want, or whatever. I mean, as the Dalai Lama said, if they really enlightened, if they really transcended everything, then they would prove that by drinking urine, and eating feces, because that would be transcending. <laughs> I mean, drinking alcohol, having sex, I mean, I don't think they're transcending much, you know. <laughs> Anybody can do that fairly easily. Then with the gradual, if you just focus on the gradual approach, then the danger is that you see everything as incremental, that you have to go through steps, and everybody has to go through these steps. I had a friend who went to practice in a very gradual tradition, and every morning she was supposed to have experienced something. You know, like there was, you know, 10 places, 10 little hearts, everybody was practicing in them, and everybody, every morning everybody was checked. So, you know, and you were supposed to have experienced this, that, and another. And the problem with her is she experienced nothing. So every morning she was like, not really. <laughs> You know, and the other one, well, yeah, yeah, I got it, you know, number five, number two, this, that. And the poor thing, you know, nothing the whole week. So she was a very poor student. So, I mean, there can be some benefit to the gradual approach, but we have to be careful again that it's kind of like too fixed, 
that's the way it is, it's gradual, that's it. Because in a way, suddenly saying, it can happen at any moment. And gradually saying, you have to work on your habits. Because to me, that's what I have observed over time, is that it's relatively easy, actually, to have breakthrough, to have meditative experience. I think it's much harder to actually dissolve the power of the habits that we have in daily life. And so I think that's why it's so important to cultivate the two together, this sudden and this gradual. The sudden experience, in a way, shows us we don't have to be stuck. And the gradual experience shows us that we can work with these habits. We are not stuck there either but we have to see them and work with them. And then I just wanted to, as a kind of a sideline, mention just a little something about in terms of Buddhahood. Because often awakening is connected to being a Buddha. And then what, is, what we can see is how the idea of Buddhahood developed and changed over time. At the beginning, you have the Buddha, and he's supposed to be the all-supreme, all-knowing Buddha. That's what he became over time. And so the idea is that he goes through many, 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 many lifetimes, and he perfects himself over many, many, many lifetimes. And then, bingo, in his last lifetime, he becomes the supreme Buddha. The only problem with that schema is that in order to become the Supreme Buddha, he has to be born in a man's body. Personally, I have a little problem with a gendered awakening. <laughs> it's kind of like, it doesn't fit. If it's kind of beyond everything, it should be beyond gender too. But possibly tradition kind of did that. Then the next idea was that actually Buddhahood was like a seed. Everybody had that seed, and if we cultivated it and planted it and put compost and within a lifetime, each person could become a Buddha. And then you had the third idea, that each person is a Buddha already. That actually we are, each of us are a Buddha already. And so again, personally, I don't, uh, I remember many, many years ago when I was traveling with my teacher in Europe and he had been invited, uh, I think people did not really know who he was, uh, he'd been invited to a Tibetan center and then they realized he was a Zen teacher. <laughs> and so before we went there, I said to him, but you know, you're going to slightly, you know, soften possibly the language, and you know, it's a Tibetan center. He said, I'm going to tell them like it is. <laughs> so, right, let's go. And then, you know, I met the head teacher. They were saying, mm, we'll see how it goes. Mm -hmm. And so at one point, I could see the head teacher was getting a little nervous about the seed and actuality thing. So we kind of ended the, the, the talk. So there is this thing, like, you know, one thing is like that, the other thing like this. But I think it's like sudden and gradual. Actually, the idea of the seed 
can also be with the idea of the actuality. I mean, they are metaphors. They're just telling us that we have this potential, and at the same time, we have to cultivate. I think that's what they're telling us. And then I just wanted to finish with uh, two poems, with um, the, the nun I respected uh, enormously when I was in Korea. She was uh, my great friend, and I published a book of her biography, and in it, there is also a poem. So that's two I have chosen. First one. Buddha cannot see Buddha, sees Buddha. I cannot see I, sees I. I saw the nature, awakened to the way. What rubbish. Then the other one. Clear water flows over white rocks. The autumn moon shines bright. So clear is the original face. Who dare say it is or is not? And then I got some little notes. <laughs> and so the little notes was, uh, that's why I kept them for now. One was about what is this? And this person said it brought an unpleasant feeling in my body. And can I, what should I do? So when we do the what is this, over time I have seen, as I said, in the instruction that people Re react to it, respond to it very differently. Some people really love it, some people don't see the point, and some people feel a bit funny with it. So personally, what I would do, if you do the what is this, and you feel a little uncomfortable or funny, or then I would leave it. I would come back to the breath or to the listening, and just time to time introduce the what is this if you really want to. But what we're doing is just kind of giving an indication. What I find is sometimes the people can't really do it sometimes in meditation, but then they find that it comes up in daily life. Like you're getting a little stuck or something, and then you think, what is this? And it's like the thing just dissolves. So I think to see that we can use it in different ways. But if it doesn't seem to work personally, since we have so many other practices, I would not necessarily force it. Then this question, how often are you saying, what is this? Is it when a thought comes or regularly? <coughs> so there is two ways to do it. One way is the traditional way, which is what I would call unconditional questioning. No, not unconditional. I should not use this word. Uh, condition, uh, questioning without reference point. So the way you would do it is more like throwing it into the moment. What is this? With no <coughs> reference point to anything. And you would do it time to time. Like you would do it, what is this? And then there is a little feeling of uncertainty, of wonderment, perplexity. And then when that goes, 
you bring again the question. So you would do it at the beginning quite regularly, and then over time, often it just happens by itself. But then generally it takes a lot of practice because it can happen by itself and you don't really have to intentionally do it. So at the beginning I would say you say it more often, and then over time it actually happens more by itself. But you can also use it in what I would call a more modern way, which is like if you have a thought, or you have a sensation, or you have a feeling, and you go in the experience and you can say, what is this? And generally by saying, what is this, it helps you to be more in that experience. So then, again, you can play with that and see, does it help or not? So it's kind of for you to see which method seems to work best. And then there was, uh, can you give a practical example or two of grasping? So, grasping, I, I, yeah, I did not go into great detail about grasping. So, I'll uh, use an example with seeing, and then I'll use an example with listening. First, the bear. Let's take the bear. So we have this bear. And this being Gaia House, it has a very nice sound. <laughs> it's a very nice bear. I mean, I will go around the world teaching, and I can never know, you know, what's going to happen. Am I going to have the stick? Am I going to have the bell? What kind of sound? Sometimes you get bell, it's kind of like that, or like, like that, so it's not so melodious. So let's say I arrive at Gaia House, I play the bell, I feel, ooh, that's a nice bell. Hmm, hmm. It would be nice to have a bell like that, wouldn't it? I mean, could I take that one? Possibly not. Too many people around. <laughs> Where could I get one like that? Maybe in that shop. Do I have enough money? Do I need to rob the bank? So, I can hear the bell and really enjoy it. Wow. I appreciate it. When I go to a place and the bell has a nice sound, I think this is nice. If it doesn't have a nice sound, this is fine too. But if it has a nice sound, hmm, that's nice. And I stay there. But grasping, identifying, amplifying, proliferating, abstracting would be what I describe. You see something, you want it, or you, and off you go. So you generally have that proliferation effect. You kind of go into abstraction. So you leave this bell and its beautiful sound to some imaginary abstract bell, which you're going to have. So that's why the identification is generally together with it. Another example. We have a very, like somebody makes very beautiful little flower arrangement. So we have this one. So, I mean, this is more like a Japanese Zen style. So you get into the room, and you see the flower arrangement. And you feel, ooh, that's a nice one. Such a nice flower arrangement. 
I am terrible at flower arrangement. I'm such a terrible person. I cannot even manage to make good flower arrangement. What kind of person is that? You know? What am I going to achieve in my life if I can't even make a good flower arrangement? <laughs> so this is what I would call negative grasping. So you see something, and then you go, you grasp it, you identify with it, and off you go with it. And generally, it sends you into unpleasant feeling tone. And then it associates with negative storyline. Instead of creative engagement, hmm, that's nice. It's nice that somebody does that. And that's it. You don't need to do more than that. But you can still appreciate it, you can still benefit from it, you can be grateful for it. And that's creative engagement. Or you have listening. I mean, listening, this happens a lot in daily life. Ah, let's make a little experiment. Some of you have already done it previously, but some of you not. So, I look at you very kindly. Mm, yes. And I say, you are all awakened. Ooh, I am awakened. Great. Martin said I'm awakened. It must be true. So now I can become a great mistress or master and I must get disciple and off you go. Or I look at you in a little more dour. Doubtful look. And I say, you are all stupid. <gasps> she said, I'm stupid? She's stupid to say I'm stupid? And off you go. But what is it? What is awakened? What is a word? Few letters? Stupid, few letters? It's actually a sonorous wave. I am not a scientist, so I can describe what it is, but it comes. And if you talk about emptiness, this is empty. Because apart from, unless you use kind of a figure of every, every country has the longest word they can get, and unless you use even the longest word you have, in front it's unconditional man, something, something, something. I'm sure you have the English equivalent. Even that is only going to be a second, at the most, two seconds. And then it's gone. And what is interesting with words is that you grasp at an emptiness. So you hear a word, you grasp at it. I don't know where you keep it, but you do grasp at it, identify with it. And two years later, you say, they said this. It was terrible, you know? And it's gone. And so the difference between grasping and creative engagement, grasping, you identify. This is about me, and you do lots of things with it. Creative engagement is a bit like, I don't know 
how you are. But me, when I go to the market, I know I should be equanimous and not pick and choose, but I do. So if I see, you know, this cherry, they're a little darker than those one. So I think, mm, I'll buy those one. So when I see something, I generally choose to buy it or not to buy it. But we've worked, it's strange. We don't seem to have that capitalist instinct with words <laughs> of choosing the best or not. We buy anything. I mean, you know, give it to me, I'll buy it. And the more painful, the better. <laughs> so we, we, I mean, we grasp at words. Instead of, to me, when you hear a word, my question is, do you want to buy it or not? And the question is, is it about me or is it about the person? If it's about me and I did something, then how can I creatively engage with it? If it's not about me, how can I be with the situation? So it's not like, you know, slander me, I'm just, you know, immune. But it's more, what can I do here? And so that's why if you grasp, then it leaves you very little uh, kind of space. You're kind of stuck. But with creative engagement, he said, okay, the world comes to me, what do I do with it? So that's what I mean by grasping and creative engagement. So I hope that the example uh, were helpful for the question here. So, so are there any comments or questions? Yeah. Um, the question is, I mean, often when I meditate, so particularly when I'm on retreats, I get these states of bliss, intensity, uh, that are stronger than, I don't know, anything intoxicants I think could bring on. Any, I remember of that from my youth. Now, I, I know, I mean, I guess this is why people talk about sacred presence and things that I, terms I wouldn't use because I think there's a risk of attachment and all the rest. But I just wondered, you know, just if you had any thoughts on the most appropriate way to be with those states, what their value or lack thereof is, what one should do with them in the moment. Okay. Actually, when we have what I call a meditative state, and they can be different kinds, <clears throat> You can have quietness and clarity. You can have pity, like joy. You can have different states. You can feel emptiness. I mean, there is different things that you can experience. And I think the best thing to do, and that's a practice in itself, is actually just to be with it. Because you see, the, I would say the the benefit of the state is that it helps you, it makes you feel different. And that's interesting, to experience oneself differently. I would say, for me, that's the main, the main 
it's kind of a side effect of the practice, and that's a benefit I see. That it kind of like makes us feel different. Oh, I am not just this person who is anxious all the time, or is like this or like that. Oh, I can feel this joy, or I can feel whatever. But you see, often you have the state, because often we just wait for the state to happen. So as soon as it happens, you're generally kind of excited about it. And then generally it goes, the more one is excited about it. And so then the practice consists in just being with it. And the, way I, the example I would give, the simile, it's like in a way with this state, being like a mother with a child. If you hold it too tight, it's going to cry. If it's too loose, it's going to fall. It's the same. If you have a state which arises, just be with it. Just know it. Don't do anything. Because often people think, I need to deepen it. But I think you just need to be with it. But then if you want to kind of like do different things with it, but then one would have to do it more in terms of doing a jhana retreat with concentration and things like that. But in terms of like what I would call a, a retreat like this, just be with it. In a way, experience it. Because we go so quickly into the commenting, etc. on it. You just need to experience it. And then it's going to be there. The more you just with it, actually the longer it stays. Because you're not interfering. And at some point it will dissolve. Because the energy, the kind of like all the condition that brought it over time dissipate. So then after a little while, it will go. Yes? William Blake, Apropos uh, Grasping. William Blake, the English mystic, had a phrase, he, not off he, but who kisses joy as it flies, lives in eternity's sunrise. <laughs> Very nice. Thank you. Okay. Uh, yeah. Uh, when you said about um, the what is this when thoughts or feelings or sensations arose, um, were you meaning just to kind of open the question because that that could kind of lead to answering it? You know, it could lead to some kind of analysis of it and I was just wanting to clarify what, what it meant. And I'm, you were I'm, talking just in meditation or just generally in life with that. Also in your life, but not to use it to resolve something. You see, when we ask a question generally it's with the idea of resolving something. When here, the what is this would be to help you to be more inside the experience. Because generally something happens and we generally go in the commenting of it. And he would be like, what is this? And so in a way to help you to, what most people say that when they do this to thought, generally they, they disappear. <laughs> Not all of them, but often that's what happened. You, what is this? And it just goes. And you, or it helps you with the sensation to go inside. What is this? So you go, in a way, go inside the experience. So to me, it would be very like a vipassana exercise. It helps you to go inside the experience. So it's not like, 
what is this, and then you kind of you know, go into analysis. But it was more like an experiential questioning. <coughs> yes? Um, I, I really liked the what is this, um, and I found that I could tell when I was using it as a mantra um, but the way I kind of felt it most was I was very struck the other day when you said, um, if I remember you right, the present is about your inner experience bumping up against the external world. And I found use, I, I, I found that very helpful and very profound. And that's how I kind of used the what is it. And then it was like I didn't have boundaries then. Because it, there was some kind of dissolving or something. Um, and I'm not grasping it, obviously, but I really liked it. <laughs> <laughs> it's what I would call the experience of seamlessness. It's when we realize that we often have this strange feeling that there are borders. You know, it's like the feeling that it's kind of like, we, for example, with the breath, with the air we breathe, we think we are in a cocoon of air, and this is my air and yours, I don't know how it is, huh? but mine is good stuff, you know? And everybody is in cocoon of air. But if you go and ask, what is this air? I mean, we're all breathing the same stuff. That's why after a while it gets a bit stale. So I think what we experience with the what is this is a little that seamlessness. There is no border, boundary, even sometimes if we have the impression that they're there. And we have to stop here to do some walking. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.